0: All right, let me encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word. We are going to open it up to Romans chapter 8, our sermon text for this morning as we continue our sermon series, New Life in Christ. We've been in Romans chapter 5 through 8 for um, several months now, and uh, we are going to read together verses uh, 1 through 17 of Romans chapter 8, verses... 1 through 17, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory.
1: We've had these hymnals for more than 20 years, and I think that's the first time we've sung that hymn. I imagine because as I plan worship in consultation with other worship leaders, I see the title of the hymn and I think, well, we're not talking about baptism today. Um, So I don't even need to consider that song. But it says well some of the things that today's text and, in fact, Romans 5 through 8 say to us. And so I hope that you were uh, absorbing the message of the song and that with me you will absorb the message of Romans 8. And would you turn to it, please, or scroll to it in your copy of God's Word? If you carry a different version of the Bible ordinarily or even the most recent edition of the NIV, the 2011 edition, this is going to be one of those rare weeks where I suggest that you want to have a copy of the Pew version open in front of you because there's a detail there that I'll call your attention to in a few minutes that you won't see in other versions or other editions of the New International Version. Let's um, pray, shall we, that God will help us with this text Our Father, we thank you for the truth that we have sung today, including the truth that by grace we are your children. Impress upon us once again today what an enormous, incalculable privilege that is. Make us grateful, as we ought to be, and conform us to the image of Christ, our older brother, the image of you, our Father that we might represent the family of God well in this world. For our sake, for Jesus' sake, and in his name we ask for your help in understanding and applying your word today. Amen. Amen. Listen to the testimony of songwriter, poet, and novelist Calvin Miller. He says... I remember the first time in school when Mrs. Dirksen, my first grade teacher, asked me what my name was. I knew that, and then she asked me what my mother's name was. I said to her, Mama. She said, no, that's not her name. I said, yes it is, we all call her that. No, she said, it's not Mama, it's something else. I said, no, it's not. She said, look, Mama is what she is, Mama's what she does, but Mama is not her name. And I said, well, I'm sure you're wrong, but I'll ask her tonight. So when I got home from school that night, I was laying for my Mama to walk in the room. I said, Mama, do you have another name besides Mama? She said, well, yes, son. My name is Ethel. It sounded obscene, like she should have a twin sister named Regular or Unleaded. (laughs) Then she said, not only that, but I have a middle name, too. It's Fay. And then she said, which was the most astounding revelation of all, Miller is my last name. It was my last name, too. <laughs> In today's text, you and I discover a truth that is outstanding. No, more outstanding than... Calvin Miller's discovery about his relationship to his mother. Here in Romans chapter 8, we discover that we have a family relationship with God. We share the family name. We share the family resemblance. We are his children. We are his heirs. We're his by adoption. This is the first time in Romans that we encounter this great gospel truth. The Apostle Paul has before this focused on other aspects of our salvation. Justification is prominent in Romans. The wonderful gospel reality that in heaven's court we are in the clear. Our sins are no longer count against us because somebody else paid for them already. Justification. And Paul goes on to talk about sanctification, the process by which the Spirit of God gradually over our lifetime makes us more and more like the Lord Jesus, conforms us to the image of God's Son, that's sanctification. Well, here is another great gospel reality, adoption. Those, verse 14 of Romans 8, who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Sons of God. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship. His presence, his ministry, makes us and marks us as God's children. Now, Paul uses the masculine word sons here, in addition to the generic term children, because In Roman culture, a sonship was a legal status as well as a family personal relationship. An adopted son had full rights uh, and legal privileges and status as a member of the household. And this, I say, is as astounding a revelation as Calvin Miller's discovery that he and his mom had the same last name. We ought not ever get over the fact that we are God's children. We ought never take it for granted. It is not the most natural thing in the world. (laughs) You, You don't get to be one of God's children just by being born. You have to be born again or adopted. The Bible uses both metaphors for the Christian's experience, the new birth, and more frequently, adoption. Don't take it for granted. The Social Register records the names of 25,000 of the richest, most prominent families in the United States, people with um, old money, people with club memberships and college affiliations, usually Ivy League, and uh, the book, The Social Register, records all these facts as well as the uh, address of people's summer homes in the Hamptons, um, the um, philanthropic endeavors in which they are engaged, their travel, their hobbies, and so on. Uh, The book is published annually, updated every May, and costs $220, but it's only sold to the 25,000 families who are in the book. Anybody here get your subscription to the Social Register? Just, It's kind of curious. Chances are not that good. I, I read just yesterday that 10% of those uh, in the Social Register live in Manhattan. It's a pretty exclusive club. I didn't see any hands, but don't you worry. Because if you're a Christian, your name is in a book that carries a whole lot more weight. The Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation chapter 21. And John 1, verse 12, to all who receive Christ, God gave the right to be called children of God. Galatians 3, 26, you are sons of God by faith in Christ. Galatians 4, 4, God sent his son so that you might receive the full rights of sonship. Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us in love to be adopted as his son. And so you've heard from this pulpit before, just last year in fact, when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, these words from J.I. Packer. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it, as a revelation of the fatherhood of God. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. This is huge, this business of being God's children. And we won't exhaust the subject today by any means, but we can learn a couple things about what it means to be God's children from this paragraph. And the first uh, is the relationship between last week and this week. Between verses 13 and 14. The relationship between sanctification and and adoption. Here, verse 13 again. This was last week's text, and this is where I want you to look at it. This is what I was referring to earlier when I said there's something, a detail that I want you to notice. Verse 13. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then notice the punctuation mark. Last week I preached on this as if there was a period at the end of verse 13. Which in some translations there is because modern English prefers shorter sentences. But really the comma belongs here. I preached it as if it was a period because the chunk of material that I wanted to preach on last week seemed to me enough for one day. But Paul is expounding a complex truth here. And that's why you see a comma followed by the word because. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because your children of God. What's the relationship there? Why the word because? What does that connecting word tell you? What is the relationship between spirit-empowered, putting-to-death of sin, and sonship? Well, there's a couple possibilities, and I have a hunch that both were in the Apostle Paul's mind. Evidence and motivation. What I mean by evidence is that killing sin, last week's subject, is evidence that we are God's children. You know, it's a family resemblance. A young man looks like his dad. A woman acts like her mom. And this is not necessarily intentional. In fact, she might be insulted if you told her she's just like her mother. (laughs) And he doesn't try to look like his father. It's genetic. It just is. And the fact that you take sin seriously enough to wage war against it, to kill it, with the enablement and the weapons of the Holy Spirit, that fact shows that you are one of God's children. If by the Holy Spirit you are putting sin to death, you will live, you have the life of your Father in you. This is the evidence that you are a child of God. That's part of the significance of that word, because. But also, it's true that being God's child motivates you to put sin to death. Some years ago, Roger, a 12-year-old boy, was orphaned. Both of his parents died from drug overdose. And a kind Christian couple, the Barneses, decided to take Roger home to live with them, and to raise him as, his, as, one, as they would one of their sons. And, and at first, it was really difficult for Roger to adjust to life in this new home, an environment free of heroin-addicted adults. And uh, if you'd been a fly on the wall several times a day, you would have heard something like, uh, no, 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 Roger, we don't behave that way in this family. No, Roger, you don't have to scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want. No, Roger, we expect you to respect others in this family. And in time, Roger began to change. Did he make all these changes so that he could become part of the family? No. no. He was already part of the family by the grace of Mr. and Mrs. Barnes. He made these changes... Not in order to become part of the family, but because he was part of the family. And when you wage war against sin, as Paul says we ought to do in the preceding verses, it isn't so that you can earn a family relationship with God. It's because you've already got a family relationship with God. And you want to act like part of his family. You 're his adopted son or daughter, and every time you revert back to the old addictions to sin, the holy Spirit says to you, no 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 that 's not how we act in this family and that 's why Paul says, because in romans eight fourteen you see the same connection in second corinthians you don 't have to turn to it this is going to be quick uh, in second Corinthians seven verse one The apostle writes, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In other words, let's act different. Let's be different. Let's be holy because we have these promises. What promises? You read the preceding verse, which I did at the beginning of the service today. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We kill sin. We wage war against everything that is unholy in us because we're children of God. We're part of the family. What a wonderful promise. The Holy Spirit does not threaten us like a slave master, a taskmaster, but appeals to our status as children. Verse 15 of Romans 8. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. We sang that song beginning of the service today. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or adoption, and by that spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Abba. It's an interesting word. It's not Greek, the language in which the New Testament is written. It's Aramaic, the language that Jesus almost certainly taught in most of the time. And in Aramaic speaking culture, Abba, kind of like our dada, is one of the first sounds that a child is able to make. And so it it says something warm and affectionate and personal about our address to God. This is how Jesus addressed God in prayer. And the early church just borrowed it. They didn't translate it into Greek. They just brought it over from Aramaic into their own prayer life and their own scripture writing. By the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba. We don't just say, Abba. This is a deep, emotional, gut response to our father. A a Christian isn't somebody who just has a doctrine of the fatherhood of God. The devil knows that doctrine. A Christian is one who responds with deep gladness to being one of God's children. I love being your child. I love it that you're my father. So we cry, Abba, Father. It's not head knowledge of God as Father, but reverent affection for God our Father. The Spirit, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Well, how does he do that? How does the Spirit testify that we are God's children? And I think that there's probably uh, an internal and an external dimension to this witness. Something subjective and something more objective. The, The internal or subjective witness is this deep heart's cry that I've just mentioned. We have assurance that we are God's children because we love being God's children. And we know that this is not our natural state. By nature, people are not children of God. But when the spirit within makes us God's children, we just cry, Abba, Father. We love it that we are his children. That's the internal witness. And then there's an external witness, something more objective, and that is the family resemblance that we talked about earlier. The spirit helps us kill sin, gives us the weapons to kill sin, sanctifies us so that more and more we look like the family. (laughs) We're painfully aware of how far we still have to go. We still cry out as Paul does in Romans 7 with kind of agony over our sin, but we are at the same time aware that that bothers us so much because we're God's children. By the Spirit, we refuse to make peace with our sin. We wage war against it. So combined, this internal heart's cry and this external gradual conformity to the image of God is the Spirit's way of testifying that we are His children. And if... Ah, you're going to love this. If, verse 17, we're children, then we're heirs. That has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In Roman custom, the adopted child's inheritance to some extent depended on the willingness of the natural heir to include him in the inheritance.
0: So we not only
1: inherit from the Father, but Christ, the elder brother, shares his inheritance with us, if if we share in his sufferings, so that we may share in his glory. Well, that last phrase deserves more unpacking than I'm going to take time for this morning. Paul will say more in the following paragraphs about the glory coming for the children of God and, in fact, for the whole cosmos. But he makes it very clear here, as elsewhere in Scripture makes it clear, that before the glory comes the groaning. Before the crown comes the cross. You might not like that, but that's the way it is. And if you want to bask in the glory of Christ at his return, if you want to experience even some measure of that glory as brothers of Jesus and children of God here and now, you've got to be willing to faithfully suffer not only the normal aches and pains of life that everybody encounters, but also the additional shame and disgrace and challenge that sometimes comes with being a Christ follower. But, sneak peek at next week's message, Paul's going to say it's worth it. It's worth it. In fact, you can see right across the page, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's all I'm going to say today about suffering with Christ before experiencing His glory. The focus today is on this just amazing good news we children of god adopted into his family a seminary professor was vacationing in gatlinburg tennessee and one morning he and his wife went to breakfast at a little restaurant hoping to enjoy a quiet meal
0: while they were waiting
1: for their food they noticed a distinguished looking white-haired gentleman going from table to table visiting with the guests in the restaurant and the professor leaned over to his wife and said I hope he doesn't come over here. They just wanted to be left alone. But sure enough, the distinguished white-haired gentleman came over to their table and said, where are you folks from? Oklahoma. Oh, it's great to have you here in Tennessee. Uh, What do you do for a living? I teach in a seminary. Oh, so you teach preachers how to preach, do you? Well, I've got a great story for you, and with that, he sat down at their table. Similar... I oh, great, just what I need, another preacher story. The man pointed out the window and said, see that mountain over there? Not far from the base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed mother, and he had a hard time growing up because every place he went, he was always asked the same question. Boy, who's your daddy? Whether he was at school, grocery store, people would ask the same question. Who's your daddy? And he would hide at recess and lunchtime to avoid getting that question and uh, taunting that sa- sometimes came with his not having an answer for them. When he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to their church. And um, this boy would go to church, but he would always slip out early. Come late, slip out early, so he would avoid hearing that question. Who's your daddy? But one day, new preacher pronounced the benediction so quickly that the kid didn't have a chance to get out and he had to leave with the rest of the crowd. And the new minister at the door, not knowing anything about this boy, put his hand on his shoulder and said, son, who's your daddy? Deathly quiet. All the people around, knowing the boy, got real quiet. And the minister sensed the situation with Holy Spirit insight and said, Wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You're a child of God. Patted the boy on the back and said, Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Now go out and claim it. The boy smiled for the first time in a long time and walked out of that church a changed person. Whenever anybody asked him, who's your daddy? He'd say, I'm a child of God. Well, the white-haired gentleman got up from the table and said, isn't that a good story? Professor said, yeah, it's a good story. And as he turned to leave, the white-haired man said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And he walked away. Well, the seminary professor his wife were stung. called the waitress over and said, uh, who is that man? Do you know who he is? And the waitress grinned and said, of course, everybody here knows who that is. That's Ben Hooper, former governor of Tennessee. Christian, you're a child of God. You got a great inheritance. Now go live accordingly.